Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Now, today on Backstory, I have a truly packed bookshelf. They co-authored The Hot Guy, a comedic romance filled with film buff humour, and now culture critics and co-authors Mel Campbell and Anthony Morris have teamed up once again, this time for Nailed It, a rom-com that pokes at the reality TV genre. Mel and Anthony will join me later to talk about their book, Going From Criticism to Comedy and What It's Like to Work as Co-Authors, but very, very soon. They've been shortlisted for the Ned Kelly Awards and David Awards for her three crime novels. Um, she's the director of Writers Victoria and has somehow found time to finish a PhD and a fourth novel exploring the thorny issue of international surrogacy. Angela Savage will join me very soon to talk about Mother of Pearl. Three Triple R. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Now, she's been nominated for the Ned Kelly and David Awards for three crime novels, is director of Writers Victoria, and recently completed her PhD and, of course, a fourth novel, Mother of Pearl, a humane, touching literary fiction that explores the thorny issue of international surrogacy. I am, of course, talking about the ever-wonderful Angela Savage. Angela, welcome to Backstory. Thanks for having me, Mel. This is um, it's such a genuine pleasure. I mean, you're no stranger to this Triple uh, R studio. Mm-hmm. That's true. But generally, um, and and this is a really this is one I'm sure you're getting a lot um, when you're talking about this book. Discussion about the fact that you are very much billed as a crime writer, mm. um, and now you are you're writing something that may be referred to as literary fiction and. I am always a little suspect of these uh, genre categories because in my mind I think you've always been someone who really explores themes and character and place, in fact, um, above a lot of other concerns. While, you know, your books are very were very heavily plotted and did um, ascribe to the kind of crime genre, yes. um, I guess, conventions. Yes. How are you feeling about this whole Recategorization discussion. S- sideways move. Oh, look, it's it's been an interesting journey. Um, I wanted to try my hand at writing something other than crime, not because I'm in any way ashamed of being a genre writer. I love being a crime writer and I particularly love being part of the Australian crime writing community, which is a very chill group of people. But um, n- insofar as... Uh, there are certain conventions attached to the crime genre or at least certain reader expectations. I did want to free myself of some of those um, in writing on this particular topic. One, and one of the key ones was that, um, you know, in crime fiction you've got to have a corpse and the dead of the corpse are better, as, um, as one commentator said in the 1920s. And most of the crime fiction I'd read about surrogacy killed off one of the key players in the surrogacy agreement. 
I really wanted all of the people left standing at the end of my novel to reckon with what they'd done. So that was the first thing about not writing crime fiction on this topic. And the second had to do with setting because, um, you know, I love Thailand. It's a country I've spent a a lot of time in. In my crime novels I try to showcase beautiful parts of Thailand alongside its seediness because seediness is pretty much a requirement when you write crime fiction set anywhere. Um, But in Mother of Pearl I wanted to be able to write uh, in a more nuanced way about the setting. So I'm still not romanticising it because we're seeing the setting through the eyes of different characters in very different emotional states. But uh, I didn't have to kind of plunge into that seedier side of the country and, and, again, that was a kind of freeing up for me. But on that question of, like, what constitutes and distinguishes genre fiction and literary fiction, I spent a significant amount of time looking into it as part of my PhD research and I couldn't come to any conclusions, to be I honest. Lo- I love that. It's literally your line of inquiry and you're like, meh, I don't know. No, like, what, yeah, what do you really want tell. from me? No yeah. one's given me, a, no one's given me an, uh, a watertight answer on what it is that constitutes literary fiction. Yeah, we're really still um, pushing the boundaries on that. I think, mm. you've, you know, we're increasingly finding now in in the so-called, you know, literary you know, awards, um, we're starting to challenge, you know, what is literary and you're starting to see books that may be classified as genre books uh, included mm. in there. But I think, you know, really it's, it's much more of a marketing category than it is anything else. Um, I think that the hard... I sort of was saying to you um, off air that you've never been a hard crime writer and by that I think I mean, um, you know, really the convention is above all else. Mm. And there are people who just really love that, you know. Mm-hmm. They love an Agatha Christie-style co- comfortable crime that very much sticks to traditional conventions at the expense perhaps of character development um, or anything else and I think a lot of modern avatars of that just really go beyond it so you know we just we're just a bit more evolved than that so Mm. it it is one of those. I'd like to think so and certainly you see a lot of literary techniques deployed in crime fiction and by literary techniques I think I think we can say in addition to the marketing term, there's a reading experience that you can associate with literary fiction. And for me, it's about it's about the space in the text for the reader to engage um, in, in a dialogue. Like there's more open space, there's more unanswered questions, there's more loose ends. Um, and that exists in, in genre fiction as well. So it's not unique to what's marketed as literary fiction. But those techniques, I think, do create a certain kind of reading experience, a, a beautiful reading experience. Mm. It's that pleasure of reading between the lines it's also the shorthand for busy people you know you you don't necessarily you want to get straight into a story using I guess tropes and cliches um in that kind of you know the more exact uh, genre uh, like books I guess that really do stick to those kind of formulaic Mm. approaches which you know isn't really the vast majority of books out there including yours um I think is a is a comfortable thing for people to be able to do when they don't have a great deal of time yes Yes, absolutely. This is definitely a topic that we could spend an entire (laughs) conversation on, I'm sure. But I really do want you to introduce listeners to Mother of Pearl. We've, you know, we've set off on this is a, you know, you're sort of embarking on slightly different sort of journey here because the topic is such a rich one and also because you have a very particular interest, I think, in, you know, in Thailand and in describing, um, you know, culture and place. Mm. Can you introduce the book? Sure. So the book came about, was sparked by a a newspaper article I read about 
a sudden spike in the number of um, babies being registered in Thailand um, with Australian passports. And it was linked to Australians flocking, was the word that was used by the journalist, to Thailand to find birth mothers for their children. And I just thought, whoa, what is going on here? And I'm someone who's had a long-standing interest, uh, as you say, in Australia's relationship with Asia, particularly Thailand, but also in sexual and reproductive health. So this, like, pressed all my buttons. And I started doing the research uh, and ended up enrolling in the PhD to further explore this topic. Um, and what I, what I came to, the conclusion I came to when I looked at the scholarly research and the, and the media commentary on the issue of transnational commercial surrogacy was that it's an existentially messy practice. It is, you know, as we've seen play out time and time again. And Scholarly work in particular doesn't hold with mess very well. So writing fiction on this topic was a way of um, of creating space to kind of navigate what I see as very unsettled and unsettling and constantly shifting terrain on this topic. So I've I've come into it. Um, it's it's it sparked by an idea, I guess, but then had to be driven by character to ensure that it wasn't going to be in any way preachy or didactic. So. Um, I had to kind of sit with the subject until those three characters whose narrative point of view the story is told kind of came into the forefront of my mind and they are um, Anna who is a an aid worker who's just returned from more than 12 years in Southeast Asia to Australia and is, is really struggling to find her feet. Her sister Meg who together with her husband Nate has spent seven fruitless years on IVF and um, a woman called Mukta known as Mott uh, who is, ends up... Um, spoiler alert, uh, becoming their Thai surrogate, though I think that's kind of fairly uh, obvious it's fairly apparent, yes. yeah. And so the, the narrative's told from the point of view of those three main characters and then there's a host of other minor characters who shed different kinds of light on the ethical and, and effective and political and, and emotional and financial uh, issues in relation to this topic. What is so great about this book, I think, is that you really, you know, you, there's no no easy approach to doing this and you're you know you're writing with great empathy all the characters are you know like really getting readers on board with you know the struggles of a, a couple really going through trying to have a baby and failing and the desperation of that and you know the ethics of you know even things like age work and and then someone who really just wants to look after their own family and and the choices that they need to make being in a country that really you know I guess um, lost the uh, I guess the colonial tussle and you know that the wealth inequities and you know the cultural um, toll that that mm. takes on mm. literally everyone no one is untouched by that but um i guess what's you know really the context uh, around which um many people are going to be approaching your book is of course that quite infamous story of um of surrogacy between australia and thailand where the baby gammy incident <clears throat> that's yes. right and i think you know I, we were talking again about this that this actually happened while you were writing it did that's it color right. how you approached six the months in i couldn't believe it i was like People, I'm trying not to write a crime novel here. Could you stop all behaving like criminals? Um, it was, it well, it was, I mean, it was shocking. But to be brutally honest, Thailand had had its surrogacy scandals before. Baby Gammy, actually Baby Grammy, his name was. It was, there was so much misreporting. I don't even know where to begin. Um, Thailand had had another surrogacy scandal involving 
a group of Vietnamese women who were literally imprisoned um, and made to give birth. But because they were Vietnamese, it wasn't considered significant enough scandal to derail the industry. Um, and the baby Grammy incident coincided with another case of a Japanese businessman who fathered 16 children by Thai surrogates. Um, so it was a combination of those two cases that brought the industry down, although insiders tell me there was also some high-level politics involved, which wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, but I, I didn't... I consciously didn't want to write the baby Grammy story, but I wanted to write a novel that explained how something like the baby Grammy story could unfold. So I've I've tried to kind of... I've looked at the, the um, grey areas around legality and around um, the, the difficulties of communicating across the cultural divide, the way that brokers actually divide and rule the, the various parties to the agreement to their own ends. All of those kind of elements are flagged because I saw the impact that all of those had and how they contributed to that awful situation um, involving that uh, involving Grammy and his mother and uh, and his uh, extended family indeed. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm talking to Angela Savage about her novel Mother of Pearl, which covers the exceedingly thorny issue of international surrogacy, particularly between Australia and Thailand. Angela, I do really want to delve now into something that you're extremely good at, um, which is writing place um, and particularly, you know, I suppose bridging that cultural divide between Australia and Asia, which seems like it should not be a cultural divide because we are actually in Asia. (laughs) Uh, Can you you talk about that? Because it's a particular feature of your writing and one that I, you know, really find I gravitate to in your writing. You do it so beautifully. Thank you. Um, Yeah. How how does one do that? (laughs) Look, the funny thing is, Mel, that the very first feedback I had on my very first novel, which at that stage was a manuscript called Tie-Dyed, as in T-H-A-I-D-I-E-D, um, was that it lacked the sights, smells and sounds of Thailand. And I think I'd written it so close to living there that I'd forgotten what it was that made the country unique or at least different from um, what was familiar to me in Australia. So I had to go back and relearn that. Um, and every time I've written a novel, including Mother of Pearl, I've returned to Thailand to conduct field research because, you know, I always suffer from art like that. Um, But in fact, there's something really beautiful about doing dedicated field research in place um, where you're constantly in this heightened state of noticing and it's just beautiful. It's, you know, you're just absorbing the sights, smells and sounds of Thailand. It's like the landscape is replete with show-don't-tell moments. Um, So there's that kind of pleasure that pleasure of the kind of engagement with that environment that I bring to the writing process um and I guess you know I I did live in Southeast Asia for a long time in the 1990s and again in 2008 uh, I read a lot of fiction set in the region um by western writers out farang as, as the Thais refer to us um and found a lot of it wanting to be really honest so a lot of my writing was that writing back um as a bit of a corrective. Now, I know I'm not by no means the only author to do that and and just lately I've been reading some really wonderful Thai fiction which is really exciting to see that starting to come out in English Um, and, you know, again that sort of sheds a whole other light on the Thai landscape and culture. But I guess, yeah, what I'm doing is trying to bring the other into the reader's awareness and affective life as well because... Uh, and this was also related to my decision to write for, uh, one of the characters 
from the narrative point of view of a tired woman, which I know is kind of really tricky terrain in this era of own voices. But I felt that putting her at a distance, othering her, was consistent with what happens in international surrogacy Mm. and enables international surrogacy to take place. Um, You know, there are people who don't even meet the woman who gives birth to their child. That... I just find that really quite shocking. But it's also consistent with the neo-capitalist world in which we live where, you know, money is considered a fair exchange for for a service and, um, you know, people, bless them, can convince themselves that that's the case and that they've written off a debt. Um, but I've, I wanted to kind of go somewhere different with this work and look at some of those emotional impacts and consequences of of engaging and connecting on this kind of level. And I do, uh, you know, appreciate obviously that, you know, writing, getting uh, perspectives from from writers who traditionally have been written about rather than, you know, getting mm. own voices, as you say, um, is an incredible issue um, and one that needs to be discussed. But I do feel like, you know, in this book you have really, you know, genuinely channelled um, someone. Um, and, it, and it, you know, I guess it, like it really to contextualise this because there are writers who are like, why can't I write anyone um, I like is that, you know, quite often uh, people have been framed from very little understanding or knowledge. Mm. Um, you know, there's been almost backdrop writing, I guess, where yes. people have gathered a little bit of information and try to construct someone. It doesn't feel that way. And I'm wondering, did you really base this on, um, you know, deep knowledge of a, a particular person or people had you interviewed people who've gone through this because of course having done a PhD you've had the opportunity of really going deep into research I did feel like this was quite informed characterization um thank you for that look yes you were right I did mountains of research absolute mountains of research I um I didn't have the opportunity to interview any Thai women who had been surrogates themselves I watched a lot of interviews with them documentary interviews uh, and I interviewed women who had engaged Thai surrogates to give birth to their children and talked with them about their relationships with those surrogates. Um, But I also had a a Thai friend who read the book and she um, comes from the same part of Thailand as the character of Mukta and and has similar background. So that was really important to me. Just in terms of checking in with her, there are a couple of key scenes in the book where I'd written the scene and I just had this niggling feeling that I was writing it with a really Western mindset and I went back to Anjana, my reader, and said, you know, do you think it would play out like this or do you think it would play out like that? And she went, nah, like that. And it was just it was just fantastic to have that um, that generous reader who, was, who I was really able to kind of drill down and ask those questions of. So I know that made a huge difference to the writing. Um, I also think, you know, um, the whole point of fiction is that those acts of empathetic imagining. And, I, and you know, Hari Kunzri, the um, UK writer, says it's an act of ethical urgency for us to do that. Um, we have to be prepared to get it wrong and we have to be prepared to be criticised. But I think if we don't make the effort, we um, have the... And I mean this for all writers. I don't want to put limits on any writer more than I want to um, put limits on my own writing uh, within an ethical choice of framework um but i think that we we kill the magic of fiction if we don't allow for or encourage those kinds of imaginative flights angela savage i could literally talk to you all day uh but unfortunately we have run out of time um i'd like to thank you so much for coming absolute pleasure mel thank you for those wonderful questions it's just been so great 
are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Rose, a talented tradie, finds herself on a reality TV show, Mansions in the Sky, and soon she's building an onset romance that could lead to it all falling apart. This is the plot for Nailed It, a rom-com that pokes at the reality TV genre and the creation of culture critics and co-authors Mel Campbell and Anthony Morris, who join me now in studio. Mel and Anthony, welcome to Backstory. Thanks for having us, Mel. Hi, Mel. Now, um, I am quietly thrilled to have all two of you here, I should say, all three of us here, um, to talk about this this really great book. I very much enjoyed it. I had a huge chuckle fest. But I also know both of you quite well personally, and I know you more through, uh, you know, the culture criticism that you do. And I felt that every step of the way through this book, that you really have this uh, richness of detail in the writing and a sense of humour about, you know, what you're, you know, sort of looking at. Um, That really comes from, I guess, covering this kind of, you know, I guess, criticism around um, television around film, um, etc. How much of that has kind of really led to you working on the books that you've done, including The Hot Guy, which was also sort of, you know, poking at, I guess, film culture and criticism? Well, it's, it's our area of interest. This is the kind of thing that we're, we're into. This is how we spend our, our days and our evenings looking at the world around us through, you know, various lenses. And, yeah, when it came to time to write novels, we kind of thought this is the sort of thing we want to do. We want to, you know, get a, bit, get a few laughs out of what's going on around us on that sort of cultural level because there's a lot of crazy things going on around us. <laughs> um, I feel like this novel was not as overtly joke-filled as our first novel, The Hot Guy, though, um, because Anthony and I, both being film critics, I think we had a lot of fun lampooning films. Um, whereas we don't really go as hard this time on reality TV. I feel like there's um, more love in the way we talk about it. <laughs> we saved some of our most um, scathing um, roasts in the, in the novel for Rose's parents, who are both cultural critics like us. Um, so I found that we had most fun sort of making them as like pathetic figures I was kind of thinking when I was looking at Rose, because I'm, you know, as many people are, not quite so secretly a massive Queer Eye fan, um, and I'm thinking Rose is like the Bobby Burke of the sort of, you know, of the mix. Um, And it's a sort of, it's a really great way in. In fact, actually, why don't you talk a little bit about the plot of this, because it is quite a delightful sort of a plot. Um, Sure. Sure. Where Um, should we start? Yeah, well, the beginning is that Rose has just started sort of her career as a tradie. She's finished up her apprenticeship and has discovered that she's sort of hitched her wagon to somebody who's quite happy to have her do a lot of menial tasks for a very long time. And she can't sort of walk away because she's got to support her, her useless cultural critic's parents. And so she's just sort of lucks into one day uh, meeting an old friend at a hardware store who says there's works going down at the uh, down at the docks where they're putting together a reality show, and 
you know, she needs an escape, so basically she jumps on board. Yeah, and it's sort of like she buys into the promise of self-transformation that reality TV shows offer. She kind of thinks that this is going to be the stepping stone to a whole new career. She's going to be able to be financially independent from having to take care of her parents and she's going to be able to fulfil some of her own dreams as opposed to just being someone's dog's body, which is what she's doing in her current job. But she soon finds herself slotting into yet another system and pretty much no one is nice to her um, on the set of the reality show with the exception of one of the contestants, Dave, who is hunky. Now, your uh, your books very much deal with the rom-com form. Uh, what is it like? I mean, th- this is something that I'm sure you're getting a, you know, a lot of questions about as well because you're writing as a duo as well. But you're writing as a duo about, you know, doing rom-coms. So how does that work out? How do you kind of like, you know, plot a classic romantic comedy? Uh, well, usually... Both of our books we've sat down before we've started and worked out the plot fairly comprehensively. We've we've both got other things to do with our week, so we really need to have things sketched out so we know where we're going. And then once we've sort of plotted it out, we work out what happens sort of chapter by chapter. Yeah, I feel like the rom-com as well is such a formulaic genre that part of what we do as critics is analysing genre, how it works, how structure works, and that has kind of come to inform the way that we plan our novels. We're like, what are the characters' motivations? How are they going to get from this point to this point? Um, What are the stages of the story? How does it escalate and Um, de-escalate? We... In our first novel, perhaps more so than in Nailed It, we had fun with um, trying to subvert some of the clichés, the well-known tropes of the romantic comedy. Nailed It, I feel, is played a little bit more straight. Um, It's a bit more of a conventional romantic comedy, but we still have fun with some of those key moments that you always uh, have in these genres. There's the misunderstanding between the two leads, the... um, the sort of run for love towards the end um, and also just the fun side characters, the friends and family who offer advice to our heroes and heroines. Well, what we found, I, I found at least when we were putting it together as well as the characters ran away a little with the story, we had certain things that we sort of had planned but as we were writing it, it was like, oh, we need to spend more time on this. These characters need to sort of interact more or hang out with each other more. And they, we didn't run away with the story, but they did kind of take over a bit and make it a bit more plot-driven than perhaps we'd originally planned. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to Mel Campbell and Anthony Morris, authors of Nailed It, a romantic comedy around reality TV. I like, will real love survive reality TV as a tagline for this, this book? It's, it's really wonderful um, and a great cover, I have to say. Yeah, we're really happy with um, our covers, which have both been done by Alyssa Danalo. Um, we like the fact that it's just like a colourful thing that you can spot easily on the shelf. For anyone who's looking for Nailed It in the shops, it's a kind of navy blue indigo coloured cover with brightly multicoloured words, Nailed It in huge letters and a television with a love heart on it. So adorable. Um, now, I really, we haven't explored enough, I think, this whole co-writing thing because I know, I feel I know both of you and your writing quite well and I was doing that thing where I'm trying to work out which bits Mel wrote and which bits Anthony wrote and I actually, some things I'm like, I know that turn of phrase, I think, and then I couldn't tell. And because so there's this real sense of, you know, 
I feel as though it's really been gone over so beautifully that you can't sort of see the seams in, you know, what bits have been written by who. How are you going to give this away, or is that like kind of oh, no, a special source? No, nah, we're happy to talk about how we write because um, I feel like a lot of people have asked us this question: How do we write? And we've sort of encountered this um, belief, I guess, that when people co-write, they sort of pass it like a parcel back and forwards. But we really don't do that very much. Um, we sit down first of all and like Anthony was saying plot the whole thing out start to finish we even plot it down to the details of some of the dialogue that we're going to have in that scene um, and then we will sit together one person will have the computer and the other person will be sitting there as well and we will literally talk through what goes on scene by scene we'll sometimes act out the dialogue ourselves um, have arguments and resolve them and this time what also would happen was we would go away separately and work on the manuscript. Like Anthony would charge forward with the plot and I would go through adding lots of details because I feel like those are our strengths. Anthony's a real um, forwards momentum, big picture, what's going to happen now person, whereas I'm like, how would we put together the deck on a boat? Let me look at that for the next two mm. hours on the internet sort of a person. Well, the thing as well is this was our second novel, so we had a bit more of a time constraint. With The Hot Guy, we had time to, to do how we liked and sort of roam around. But with this one, we sort of had to keep the ball moving, so we sort of had to work on ways that we could both play to our strengths and make sure that we were both sort of occupied pushing the story forward in the ways that we could. I think one of the reasons people are so kind of, you know, interested, let's say obsessed, with this idea of co-authoring as, a, as an unusual thing is I think because, you know, people often assume that a book is the work of, of an author, you know, suffering alone in their literal garret mm. um, with no ins- outside influences. But, of course, editors quite often play a very big role in constructing books, in helping them kind of become the book that we know, sometimes to such a degree that m- one might even say they're co-writers of that book you know I sort of feel like in some ways working in this co-authorial um you know group I guess that you have or team that you have seems like it's not such an unusual thing really in in novel writing is that a similar feeling that both of you have well it's it's important I think in comedy you really do need feedback um there are some writers who can go away and write a comedic novel and just hand it over and everyone loves it but you really do need feedback and having a co-author for both of us we can you know throw jokes out there and if they just fall to the floor with a clang then it's like well perhaps that's not a great idea and it helps us sort of keep things moving comedy wise that we both can sort of work off each other and we have very similar senses of humor which has been a huge help I don't think we could have co-written both of the books if we weren't on the same page as far as what Mm. makes people laugh so you're kind of, you know, in a sense approaching it more like, you know, writing for television. Is that yeah. sort of what you're getting That's at? That's another yeah. metaphor we often use is we say it's like a TV writer's room um, yeah. in that it's a constant process of throwing ideas out and the other person might shoot it down or the other person might say, oh, yes, and. So it's almost a little bit improv as well. We're trying to figure out, well, how does this build on this, build on this, build on this? Um, so it's not so much that that really inside one person's head like single author mentality. Mm. Do you find you really get um, start advocating for particular characters that you sort of are slightly in love with? I feel like we mm. both liked the same characters. Yeah, there are some characters that are fun to write for and that are able to do things and we both were sort of on the same page as to who those guys were. 
Yeah, it's the side characters, I think, sometimes that are the most fun because they're allowed to be a little more cartoonish and larger than life, whereas I feel like Rose and Dave, our two protagonists, are played relatively straight. I think that our experience writing The Hot Guy has also led us to experiment on that front because our protagonist in The Hot Guy, Kate, was really seriously wacky and some people were like, she's too wacky. So this time we were like, let's have characters who don't have our sense of humour. They're both very serious people in their way and they can be the straight guys and then the rest of the novel sort of creates the comedy around them. I do want to now kind of like talk a little bit about actually writing comedy. Um, I actually am almost infamous in my in my kind of friendship circle for kind of slightly hating romantic comedies as a genre but I sort of loved this and it's that sort of you know I think it's that arch humor that you managed to very much nail haha <laughs> I get one um in this book uh you really do it's it's that there's a, a certain you know I guess um way of writing humor in in books that I think I actually think it's really difficult I think that it you know you see more successful comedy writing for television um for screen generally actually um than I have seen really in books um, when it happens, though, it really works. And I, there was so there was a lot of ch- gentle chuckling for me and outright chuckling um, when I was reading this book, but in a way that felt woven into the book rather than kind of insert joke here. How do you do that? How do you sort of um, create a humorous tone to a book? I think in part, um, part of the reason why we chose to do rom-coms was because people know how rom-coms work. They're aware of, you know, the basic arcs. And so that gives you a lot of space to be funny around it without taking away from the main story. And Mel and I had a lot of jokes and a lot of things we wanted to talk about and make fun of. And with a sort of solid romantic comedy story, we were able to weave that into it. So it, it sort of helped that we looked came towards it more perhaps as a comedy with romance in it rather than a romantic story with some jokes on top. That's right. Yeah, I feel like uh, a lot of what gets called um, romantic comedy is really just drama told in a light-hearted way. Um, and so the, there's not so much an emphasis on, you know, sketch comedy sketches like set pieces that are meant to be farcical or wordplay or, you know, slapstick kind of things um instead there's just a kind of like screwball back and forward in the dialogue and I think that sometimes people see that and they think oh that's what romantic comedy is but I think we were trying to take comedy as more of a broad church and try and include lots of different sorts of funny things and of course comedy is so subjective as well Mm -hmm. so what makes us laugh might not make other people laugh but we've hoped that by including a broad variety of different kinds of jokes in the book we'll tickle people's funny bones more often than not. (laughs) It's something about that archness to the writing that I, you know, like it really immediately um, kind of got me straight into the the mindset, I guess, that, that you were, you, you were sort of wanted to achieve, I think, with the book that, you know, immediately I was in that, you know, the sense of humour, um, looking at the absurdity of things instantly. Um, something in that, the, like, you know, this real um, energy and drive and a sort of vivacious writing style. Is that something that came naturally or did you have to really kind of find it? Well, in in this one, we've sort of made a conscious decision to have Rose be an outsider. Um, She was looking at a lot of the crazy stuff going on rather than being part of it. And I think that really helped with the comedy. We were sort of able to have her point of view go through the book 
as somebody who is looking at these things and going, what are these crazy people doing? What is this whole sort of situation about? Yeah, so the book never leaves Rose's point of view, whereas in The Hot Guy we went back and forward between the two characters and so as a result a lot of the um, energy of that book was much more about the back and forward there. But um, I don't know where the actual tone comes from. Um, I guess we wanted to avoid being sort of mean and sarcastic and snarky in the way we were writing because I feel like Rose is a very wholesome and earnest character and so, of course, is Dave, but in a different way. Um, So we didn't want to, like, have that mean-spirited sort of tone, but I feel like, in a way, we kind of just described things and let the absurdity of them come through. Yeah, reality television is the kind of setting where you don't really need to do a lot of work to have it come across as sort of crazy and over the top. And even though the show Rose is on is by reality TV standards quite sedate, there's still a lot of crazy stuff going on there that she's sort of taken aback by. And I think that was sort of... It was the combination of these people in this weird sort of world who treated that as perfectly normal and then Rose sort of looking at it and not so much shaking her head but kind of thinking, this is this is not my world and these are not really my people. I sort of love that juxtaposition as well of someone who's like a very practical person who's doing, you know, who's building things. Mm. I always, in fact, I'm, you know, I think a lot of people are obsessed with that particular subgenre of reality TV, which is, of course, the construction or like the, you know, the house building or interior design subgenre because it's that somehow, you know, finding the drama um, in actually, you know, something that's quite, um, you know, involves like building and measuring and what is that? Why are we so obsessed? obsessed with it oh it's there's a whole range of things i think that it's called competency competency porn where the the appeal is just that it is people who are good at their job doing their job and it's or conversely when there are people who are bad at their job and you enjoy watching them fail but yes just seeing people able to do something Mm. well is often just satisfying in and of itself and as mel says the the adverse is true when people are terrible at their job and think they're great and the whole thing's falling apart around them and they're just their confidence is you know supposedly getting them through but it's clearly not yeah so there's kind of a difference between your sort of grand designs sort of show which is about professionals going about building something (laughs) and then there are these reality shows which are so confected and you just know that the level of construction is so shoddy the house is going to fall down immediately (laughs) after the cameras go away and the whole point is watching people who have no skills attempting to do this kind of work which is sort of the genesis really for the hot guy sorry for nailed it which was who are these mysterious tradies that you sometimes see in the background of these shows surely they must be the people who actually build stuff i mean one of my favorite episodes whenever you see like grand designs is the one where the plan is so over the top and they've got the you know the hard-headed tradie who's kind of just standing there pulling a face every time the homeowner is describing their you know we're going to have balconies out here and wings out there and they're just like can't do that mate (laughs) i'm always uh team bobby on queer eye anyway because i'm just (laughs) like the one that can actually really do the stuff that's right and they never really show him at work it's just they go back (laughs) to the house and suddenly it (laughs) looks completely different well i think in the the most recent season there's a little bit more of that like him sort of you know getting down and doing a few jobs with some of the people involved but but i'm like 
literally transform this place <laughs> and we're spending no time going through what's going on there. That's right. Now, I would uh, very much like to continue talking to both of you uh, about this book and just about anything else, to be completely honest. Um, but we have just about run out of time. So uh, Mel Campbell and Anthony Morris, thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory. It was our pleasure. Thanks very much. That was uh, Mel Campbell and Anthony Morris who joined me today to talk about their book Nailed It, uh, a romantic comedy uh, set in the world of reality TV. Um, That is actually out now through Echo. Uh, And I'd also like to uh, thank my earlier guest, uh, Angela Savage, who came in to discuss her book Mother of Pearl out now through Transit Lounge. Free Triple R. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.